Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan met while students at the University of Iowa. They both happened to have worked as ushers and projectionists at rival movie theaters. Marcus found his interest in filmmaking early on, collaborating with a friend and his video camera, and when presented the opportunity to turn in short films in lieu of written assignments in a high school class, he was hooked. Patrick, however, appeared destined for a career running his family's business. Fortunately, his mediocre math skills didn't make a degree in accounting or business very appealing, and Patrick chose screenwriting instead. After college, Patrick moved out to Hollywood to work in the film industry, and Marcus followed a couple years later, and the partnership was born. The pair wrote the script Feast, which won the third season of Project Greenlight that jump-started their career. Melton and Dunstan have since gone on to write four of the Saw films, a Piranha sequel, and a trilogy of Feast movies. Their most recent work includes the upcoming film The Collection, in theaters November 30th, a sequel to their cult horror film The Collector, a rewrite assignment on the highly anticipated sci-fi film Pacific Rim, with director Guillermo del Toro, and they are currently writing a screen adaptation for the best-selling video game God of War. We talked to Marcus and Patrick about the key to making a writing partnership work, creating truly scary moments, writing a sequel to an established franchise, and much more on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today we're speaking with horror auteurs and screenwriting duo Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton. Uh, hey, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Hey. Hello. Um, now, you guys have a new film coming out uh, November 30th called The Collection. Um, I was fortunate enough to have seen it already, and it's fantastic. Um, I do have to say, though, that I didn't see the original Collector before I saw The Collection. Um, but you know what? I think it was one of those films that was well-crafted enough that I don't think it mattered. I mean, it def- definitely stands well enough on its own. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process and, and how it, it felt more like an alien-alien sequel as opposed to some of these other sequels where one story kind of bleeds into the other? There were definitely two different films in terms of stylistically and, and story-wise? Well, we were very fortunate that the Liddell Company, the, the company that uh, acquired the first collector and financed the second, gave us the, the freedom to create a story that could stand on its own two legs. We didn't have to call the film Collector 2 and almost make you think like it was a diluted version of the first or a smaller version than the first. No, this one and giving it a slightly different name, even though it's still very much close to Collector. It is Collection. It is bigger. There mm-hmm. is, uh, it is about a testament that our villain is making. Mm-hmm. And in the DNA of crafting the story, it stood on its own two legs. It did not require uh, the first movie. But kind of like when I was a kid, I saw Aliens first. Right. I didn't know that there was a movie called Alien. I was Me in a, a hotel and turned, it on, and turned on HBO and there it was. Uh, and just, it just fell in love with that whole story and the adrenaline of it. So now we were given a chance where we had a heck of a lot more resources. We had a, a huge budget. Okay, let's, let's go for it. And so what was a, uh, an intimate, cruel story in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere now could become a big-scale horror with action with all the trimming shot on super 35 millimeter anamorphic film <laughs> and, and, and look different than the other horror product as well. It's not, it's not the found footage. It's not shaky sure. in any means. It's not uh, of tiny, modest means in the sense that we had all the toys and the discipline of, of this movie was just putting the toys down in the sense that we could do everything a few times. Plus, Behind the camera was the entire crew for The Walking Dead. From between season one of that program and season two, mm-hmm. uh, we snuck into Atlanta and made the film with all of that impressive, amazing, and talented team. I right. mean, it, it was just, just, just awesome. And keep in mind, too, when we, um, we tested it a few, few months back, and it tested really, really well, and we were surprised to find out that maybe 10% of the test audience had actually seen or heard of the original mm-hmm. and so uh it really it, it really was not necessary viewing um if you had had not seen the the original to understand and completely follow the the sequel 
Right. Right. I mean, other than obviously bringing back the collector and Arkin, um, sort of your hero, uh, it, it seems to have a whole different sort of continuity in terms of like the, you know, the storyline, the characters, um, which I think uh, makes it so much more accessible to a whole new audience, as well as having enough carryover from the mythology of the previous film. I think. Right. Um, Absolutely. Um, maybe, uh, Patrick, could you tell me a, a, a little bit, what is the collection about? The story? Well, yep. we promised, um, going in, we, we promised that uh, the the new movie was going to, the, the last movie ended with a box closing, an Arkham being stuck inside. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to start this new movie with this box opening and sort of like introducing this new game. And so in, in, in the story, um, we actually follow initially a group of, young uh, teens, Elena being the, being the lead one. And her and her friends go to this, this party, and uh, it seems to be a regular sort of, you know, underground rave, and then all hell breaks loose, and everyone is killed, and she is uh, captured and taken to the, to the collector's lair. And um, at the same time, Arkin escapes, and the as chance would have it, Elena's father is He's uh, a bit of a heavy, and so he has the means to um, hire people to track down this killer before uh, anything bad happens to her. And so Arkin is the only person who survived this, so now Arkin gets pulled back in to lead this team into the into the lair because he knows how to get back because he's sort of uh, you know he he's a real sort of like clever um, individual, and he and he knew and he and he marked down on his arm uh like this sort of like blind map that went at when he was taken in the first movie so he knows how to get back there mm-hmm. and so they he leads his team back into the into the, the this lair and they find this house of horrors and you know called the argento hotel and that's where sort of the madness begins hmm. cool now um marcus what was the inspiration behind the collector and the collection what was the i'm sorry come again the inspiration what what made you guys decide to write this story this uh you know come up with how did you come up with the collector uh mythology the character well it was based on we had a we had a love for the the villains of the you know the slasher genre the horror genre and whatnot and the most effective being those that attacked like jaws in the sense that if you were in the water you were fodder for jaws there was no clear delineation that he was after teens he was after uh, tax evaders, he was after, you know, just lawyers or anything like that. Jaws' function was to eat, mm-hmm. and that was it. So we wanted to apply those rules to uh, our villain in the sense that his eyes are even vacant of detail. They're complacent. His movements are from the insect world. He's as if he's a, the human embodiment of a very pious spider, and he will set out all these elaborate ways for people to ensnare and, and hurt themselves and then he'll just watch with absolute glee as, as they do so. Mm-hmm. No. And the inspiration to keep that going and then plug it in was only met by coming up with an adversary that had an equal skill set. And that's how Arkin was created in the uh-huh. sense that what would be the fly in the spider's ointment. Right. And keep in mind, you know, we, the, thing, the first movie we did was called Feast. And it was like, that was our sort of like fanboy response to all these horror films we had seen. Mm-hmm. Where we threw like, usually, you know, we tried to like defy a lot of the cliches that happen in the genre and so with with this one you know the the original idea for the first movie um sprang from trying to like twist elements of, of the familiar so the first movie was the home invasion movie mm-hmm. and it could have just been um this family and this guy shows up and bad things happen but we wanted to add, add this x uh this x factor in arkin who is the guy who he's coincidentally breaking into the house at the same time trying to go about his business and steal something when he realizes that there's a family tied up in the basement and somebody else inside. So now the chief has to become a hero. And so that, so, so that was really our, our thing was just trying to do something a little bit different than, than people had seen before. And then, and then for this one, um, you know, it's, it's we're dealing with elements of the sequel. And so uh, we want to do that, the, the same thing with like the um, teen slasher movie. So, like, it opens. If you just walk into this movie, you, you'll initially think, "Oh my goodness, this is a, this is not what this la- the last one was." And we're following this group of teens, and I oh, I guess we're gonna 
see how their relationships work out and, you know, the geek's going to finally rise to the occasion and the cute girl's going to realize that, you know, she needs a bit more grounded and, and look at the insides of people, blah, 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 <laughs> and then they all die. Right. Um, and so, uh, and, and it turns in sort of like, you know, uh, darkness reintroduced and it becomes this, this you know, this uh, siege movie inside this um, this demented hotel. And so, you know, again, we were just trying to like do something that was a little bit different than uh, most people are accustomed to. And that had to do with the way that, you know, Marcus shot it. Um, uh, and then just like with the production design and, and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys um, have done uh, a lot of horror films, uh, a bunch of Saw movies, a uh, Piranha film, uh, Feast, uh, three Feast films, uh, the Collector films. What is the key to scaring people? Are there any sort of tricks of the trade that you can share? Intimate damage. Okay. And, and what, by that, it's, not a lot of people really do feel when you see someone run through a room and their arm gets chopped off or, you know, a huge monster comes barreling through. But if you show a needle approach the soft spot of someone's foot, everybody flinches. <laughs> and it's the idea of that honing in on that, that thing that we all have in common. Right. A torn fingernail. Mm-hmm. A you know, the 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 anger one feels when getting a slight tap in traffic or seeing a a loved one get shoved. Mm-hmm. Springboarding from there. Well, it in, on, intimate feelings. It depends on too, like your age, the age you're at, because um, things that I found scary when I was a lot younger really aren't you know all that scary now. Um, what, what scares me is something that is just feels real and is quite relatable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in that sense, that's that. I think that's why, like the found footage movies, had such an effect with people, um, because it felt real. You know, there weren't. It wasn't slick. Uh, there weren't recognizable um, actors, and you know, and, and and they often had these sort of like downer type endings that just ended very abruptly, and there wasn't sort of this you know eloquent wrap up that a usual usual Hollywood film would, would have. And so that that struck strikes people as uh, being scary. Did you ever see a movie called The Poughkeepsie Tapes? Uh, I've heard of it. Actually, I never saw it. it, it I think it never quite came out. It was yeah. The first movie the uh, Dowdle Brothers had. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a really affecting, crazy movie, and it and 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 it it was one of the first sort of found footage movies, and it was uh they found all these ta- you know police storm this this house, and they find all these tapes. Um, that the serial killer left over all these years, mm-hmm. and it's in kind of a documentary type way, and it's just really affecting and unnerving. And every time it goes to this sort of like the found footage, um, of the footage, it just really gets you. And you and and I'd seen like the uh, I saw Paranormal Activity the first time, mm-hmm. uh, well before it actually had came had, had been released, and um, you know it, it's like in inevitably just gimmicky the whole the style but once you sort of get used to it and you get lulled into this sort of the pacing of it mm-hmm. and it goes that locked off shot it's you know and it's quiet and it's dark and no one in the theater saying a word and you're just waiting for something to come and it, and that's just it is it's scary and it's fun um something that's going to stick with you for a long time is a little bit different you know something like the shining which right. uh, has a little bit more texture and nuance to it and that and that goes back to sort of what Marcus was was talking about. It's it, that's something that, um, you know, is beyond just the gimmick of of, of a boo or something like that. It's something that is uh, an image or whatever that's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. Like I I was affected by Poltergeist and mm-hmm. still am, you know, because I saw that at the very because uh, the age of seven um, in the theaters, and so I was not used to sort of like knowing when a certain scare was going to come or whatever, not being smart enough to look away or close. <laughs> <laughs> you know? right. Or like, you know, like in that movie, um, it goes to the point where, you know, Zelda Rubenstein says, this house is clean or whatever she says. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, it's over. Great, it's over. But the movie keeps on going. And as a kid, you don't realize that, well, that was just the end of the second act. There's right. The act where shit really hits the fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, it got so crazy. I had to, I had to leave. I was like in tears almost because it, <laughs> it was so intense. It was a PG movie. Okay? Right, right. I mean, you know, PG movie, now you think of like, 
you know, Garfield or something like that. Like, right. And that's not G because he says, like, poop or something like that. Right. That was a PG movie. The guy's ripping off his face, and I can't even look at a drumstick anymore without thinking of that scene with <laughs> the packets coming out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> it's just, you know, it's individual in terms of uh, what people really find scary and sticks with them. So. Sure. Now, you sort of – you guys sort of took over the writing for – the Saw franchise. Mm-hmm. What kind of challenges are there when you take over a, a, an established franchise in terms of maintaining enough of that sort of history and mythology and, 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 and through line, but yet trying to also keep it sort of bring a sort of freshness, originality to it so that it's not just another one of these, you know, add on movies. You know what I mean? Well, it, it's not like we were just giving it and they were like, good luck. No, 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 I know. You know, I mean, it was, it, that's such a, it was such a, you know, sort of industry over, over there with the producers and sure. the studio that there was a lot, it got a lot of attention and there were certain things you could do and you couldn't do. And we had to, we had to sort of learn that on the first movie. It helped that Darren right. Bowsman who did two and three was still back for four. So he kind of like, you know, it'd be like, why why do you have this as an exterior? We don't go outside. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's all sort of shot on the same stage in Toronto, in and or around the stage. Right. And uh, not until like six we got outside a little bit, and and seven we got outside a little bit. But you right. know, you just you just you learn how to write within it, and you and you sort of knew certain things that had to happen, and you know it's going to open it's going to open with a cold open kill. And then that kill is going to probably uh, be sort of the beginning point to some kind of investigation that this that the law official is going to be following. And then there's going to be a new protagonist for each movie. And so how does that how what's that backstory and how does that tie into the the you know uh, the characters that have already been established? Blah blah blah. And so um, you know we know all that. We're told all that. That's what has to happen. And then you just try to, you, and it's really the little things you try to make work better, mm-hmm. you know, like just make sure you know you're only given a scene to set up a a, a character and the backstory and emotion and all that sort of business. So better make that work really good because either it works or it doesn't, you know. Right. Um, so, uh, but it was great because it had the movie coming out. You know, it's got this release date, and mm-hmm. Lionsgate's waiting for to see the movie so they can start really promoting the hell of it. And right. it always got a great push, and and it had such a such a thrust behind it that um, it was it was fun to be a part of. And but, you know, we, we certainly weren't on our own. So. Right. Well, I kind of said took over the writing of it because you see, you didn't write one sequel. You've written what four? Yes. So yeah, they they seem to sort of you know, have brought you in to kind of, yeah. Yeah. Well, we pitched, we pitched it as a, the first time we pitched uh-huh. what four would be, we pitched it as a three arc movie. Four, five, oh, five. very cool. And, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't necessarily follow that, that arc that we pitched, but, um, you had to kind of think about, think about it that way or, or else I think you're going to paint yourself into a corner and then have a real tough time getting out. Right. So, you know, once we sort of did that, I think it was just, it was just made more sense to keep us on, keep us moving. Right. Those movies, you're coming out every year. So you, it's not like you just, it's not like the new, the last movie comes out and was like, oh, that's great. They pat each other, pat each other, you know, everyone else on the back and was like, okay, great. What should we do now? It's not, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to do it. You wouldn't be able to finish it. So we had to, like, we were already writing um, when the last movie would come out. Mm-hmm. Know? And right. then you see what worked, what didn't work, and you try to sort of improve upon it, blah, 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 you know. Right. Now, um, how do you, especially with movies uh, like The Collection, like Saw, where they're the, the, the sort of violence and, and sort of uh, scary elements are really, really, um, I don't want to say over the top, but they're really sort of in your face and really uh, they're heavy images. Um, how do you toe that line between sort of really uh, scary and powerful, strong images and kind of that over the top schlockiness that you see in some films? Well, as long as it, it, it almost plays like a dirty joke uh-huh. in that there's a setup 
where you see the scenario, you see all the sharp implements in the room, you see the danger, and that's like the setup, right? right. And you have, you have the character in there that's really the joke's on them. And then when the, uh, the violence happens, the relief of it can be, oh, you cover your eyes, or there is almost a laugh, like, oh, <laughs> what you just saw. Right. And if you can toe the line between when it goes off to also create a jump, I think that's the difference between scare and schlock. In the sense mm-hmm. of it's schlock, it comes at you in just a bucket, and it's kind of, oh, okay, well, that was gross. But if there's, if there's kind of an ingenuity to the, to the organization of that scene, they, they really should play like a bit of ballet and the punchline of a dirty joke. So you get the thrill and the clever punch that, of what it is to be. Mm-hmm. Well, we've done schlock, you know. <laughs> My resume is there's a lot of schlock in there. And I don't know, sometimes it's just, it's just often targeted for a different audience, you know. So a lot of people sure. like schlock. And, you know, m- most, most casual viewers uh don't though <clears throat> so it it is a bit of a delicate, delicate balance and a lot of it is, is tone to a certain extent sure um, i mean I don't, I don't most people don't consider saw schlock they would consider it maybe like torture porn sure but um generally not schlock maybe the, the feast movies maybe schlock um but uh not so much saw and, and a lot of it just does come back to the to the tone like if, if there's a silliness to it, that, that can often be considered sh- schlock. But you know, you know it, the thing about those kinds of movies, though, is it's like cotton candy. Like too too much, uh, and you can't last more than thirty minutes before it just gets stupid. And it's right. it's, a, it's a it's a hard balance to hit. You know, I think everyone's always trying to hit the Sam Raimi. Uh, right. You know, but it's just as history has proven uh <laughs> it's not that easy to do no um, not at all and but a lot of it a lot of it has to do with just like the the tone and how the actors are sort of uh presenting the dialogue like feast I, see the first feast i thought had a pretty good balance of that and and you know that and it just was like like characters were very real and serious and and were just thrown in this insane um predicament and and there just wasn't the, the natural hero, heroism that comes with this type of movies because these characters were quite despicable, mm-hmm. but not despicable to a point where they were self-aware or anything like that. They were just bad people and were the bad people in the wrong position. And so, um, you know, it's, 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 no one is, I'm, well, you know, the trauma movies maybe <laughs> sometimes are specific, specifically going out to like be completely ridiculous and over the top. And that, but again, it's just sort of a niche thing. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily bad. It just is what it is. Well, I, again, I think the, the movies that do it intentionally, sort of tongue-in-cheek, they're sort of a playful, they revel in it, those are the ones that I think are enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. What I mean by schlock are the films that do it sort of unintentionally. They just they don't know where that line is between right. uh, what's mm-hmm. fun and, and trying to make it fun and just sort of way over the top and, and out of control for being out of control's sake. And if you you get that those laughs unintentionally, you know what I mean? Right. Well, you're talking about shitty movies, right? <laughs> like, I mean, and, that, and there's plenty of those as well. Sure. And that, that and that, that you know that that's often just just a bad results from a bad situation. Not enough money, not enough time. No one cares and no one's passionate about it, so it comes off like a piece of shit. You know, like a lot of the like the sci-fi original movies they're just fucking stupid you know <laughs> right so right. um well, they're fine you know i i'll on the saturday night when i'm just laying in bed or something i'll i'll stop on them they're fun to watch for a little bit uh but even amongst those and nothing comes to mind um well i saw this movie i think it was called big bad wolf that was a horror film it was about this werewolf and like he tears people's arms off and and so there, there's some of those types of really b movies that you still enjoy that I don't think are bad movies. And then some of them are just so poorly crafted that you just don't think the people making them had any idea of what yeah. they're doing. And so to me, even those B type movies, there's a difference between, you know, the, the, yeah. that, that, you know, well-crafted schlock and sort of like yeah. shitty movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're right. Um, now just switching gears here really quickly. You guys have done a ton of horror films and, um, but you guys are now adapting a video game called God of War uh, into a feature. What is that process like, and, and sort of how did you end up working on that? Well, that came out of um, our work on God of War. Uh, I mean, sorry, 
out of our work on Pacific Rim. Okay. Um, we did Pacific Rim, and then, um, you know, uh, the producers of God of War were trying to get that going, because that was originally done in 2006 by David Self. They had a draft, mm-hmm. and then it just, sort of, for whatever reason, didn't move forward into production. And now that it's gaining momentum again, they needed to revamp the screenplay to a certain extent because a lot of other sword and sandal movies have come out. So we had we were obviously familiar with the game and had played the game, and it was the first. This movie just takes place in the world of the first game, mm-hmm. and so we uh, had some ideas on how to change things up and talked about them with the studio, and they liked it. So we got hired to do it, and we're just in the middle of that now, mm-hmm. doing the screenplay. And that, you know, yeah, that's not what we're necessarily known for, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's fun to play in a different sandbox. <laughs> right. But, you know, if you play the game, it's it's there's yeah. some pretty brutal stuff going on in there. Sure. It's not, uh, it ain't Mary Poppins, you know. Yeah, not Pac- um, So, it, but it, again, it's, you know, it's the tone. It's just, it's a very serious movie. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, approaching it in that manner and really respecting the game and the characters and the and the mythology uh, was important, and you know we do that because we're fans of the game, and so we want to make a good movie. Right, <clears throat> and a lot of video games nowadays, um, uh, whether it's the you know the Dragon Ages, the God of Wars, those kinds of of video games, they definitely have a story. The Grand mm-hmm. Grand Theft Autos. Now, but what? And I know there was you know somebody else had done a little bit of work on it before you guys had done work on it before you. What? But, how do you take the best elements of a video game, bring it into a film, and and, and sort of create that sort of storyline that's that's you know again uh, cinematic, and yet still doesn't have that open endedness that a lot of video games you can kind of go off in multiple directions and uh, yeah well I think you mean like the episodic nature that sure are um, it, it's it's just in in the case of God of War, it's looking at the lead lead character, or in any video game, really, it's looking at finding finding grounding it into that in that that central character, and finding what their emotional journey is. Mm-hmm. And if that feels real and can strike a chord emotionally uh, with an audience, then you got something. And then everything else around it is just window dressing, you know. Right. And so that that's all it was. And and God of War has that. It's already there. Um, you know, and so it wasn't that hard to find it and, and ground it within, you know, the emotions of creators and his family. And so that's uh, that's where we're going with that. But we can't really speak too much about it because it's we're right in the middle of it, and it's you know, sure, sure. Studio, studios get very uh, antsy when you start right. talking too much right. about about their product that's come out. Um. Well, then speaking of another project that hasn't come out yet, Pacific Rim, uh, which is a huge, big-budget action sci-fi uh, done Guillermo del Toro. What's it like working with Guillermo del Toro? It's phenomenal. He's uh, he, he's he's had all of this imagination and, and, a, and a link to childhood and a link mm-hmm. to technology so firmly grounded in his bones and in his soul that uh, entering a room to work with him and meet with him is is really a, a visit to a, a playground that is that is just it's it's just wonderful, and and we were given um, such a wonderful tour through the world that he wishes to present with that film, and it's it's going to be an exciting, wonderful film. Mm-hmm. He has so much energy, and he he's juggling so many things at once. Especially you know we were with him a month before production, so you have a lot going on, and he was always so just honed in on every the tiniest of elements in terms of in terms of the scripts and uh his you know his fingerprints are all over everything and it was pretty um amazing to see i mean he's a true artist and he uh right on a very high level and um just was 24 7 it was you know it was tough to keep up because he just he was like constantly on it was 24 hours you know 24 hours a day seven days a week um, and, you know, he demands a certain level of uh, quality. And so with sure. him and, and, and Mary Parent, who's the producer on it, uh, we just worked our ass off for the, that month and, you know, help, help them get it ready for 
production, and I think it's going to really it's going to really show how much work went into it because it's uh, it's been testing great. I I hear and and you know the trailer's going to be coming out soon. I hear and it's going to be a, a big tentpole come next summer. Yeah, I'm excited. I know they did a lot of uh, promo stuff at uh, Comic Con over the yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was watching. Uh, I didn't. We weren't at Comic Con, but I was watching via a uh, a live blog. Uh-huh. So like, so like people were playing like, oh my god! And now Gamer came to the stage, and there's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was like, <laughs> and then there's a moment where they're showing stuff, and like, because it was like a, it was like a bunch of different people that were chiming in, uh-huh. and like people were like freaking out, like, oh my god! Like in all caps, like, and then this happened. <laughs> It was like it's actually really cool to 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 uh, watch it like that. Cause it, it, I felt like in you know in the fifties, like some kid like listening to the the forties or the thirties, listening to some radio as like some radio broadcast was going on. You know, like the the, the uh, Orwell's War of the Worlds or something like that. Just listening like you know, and and it was pretty cool. But, but yeah, I guess they just <laughs> blew the roof off the place down in Comic Con, and so it's gonna it, it, the marketing is gonna start up pretty soon. I'm, I'm guessing. So. Yeah. Exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in addition to screenwriting, you also wrote uh, recently wrote a novel called Blacklight. Yeah. Um, what was the inspiration behind writing a novel, and what was that process like as opposed to sort of writing a screenplay? Well, you know, that idea came up for for that book when Marks and I were in the waiting room for the uh, during Project Greenlight when we were in the oh. top three. Uh-huh. We had to go. We had to, we had to go in. We were just about to go in and pitch like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and Wes Craven and Chris Moore uh, and all the Dimension executives of our sort of like take or why we were we were the one to pick. And then and we and we were talking about it, we wanted to do like like a ghost story with something that was a little bit more revved up. And so we had this idea of this bullet train, you know, that goes mm-hmm. from LA to Vegas, and then there's ghosts on it, and there's this one guy, this ghost hunter who goes on it and has to take care of him. And so um, that was an idea a long time ago. And then we, we had dinner with this guy, John Schoenfelter, who uh, worked at Mulholland, Mulholland Books, which is an imprint of Little Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, he liked the idea of taking screenwriters and that had ideas for, for novels and pairing them with novelists and then doing a book. Mm-hmm. And so he just asked us if we had any, any ideas. And um, he sort of was describing what, what, he, what he wanted to do uh, you know the type of things, and and Marcus was like, well, remember, remember that one, that one, uh, you know, the ghost train one, and then so we ta- started talking about that, and then we sort of pitched that out, and he really liked it, and he asked us to write it, write up some pages, and we did that, and then uh, and then we met Stephen Romano, who is the novelist, and we just he we are cut from the same cloth. I mean, he's just like you know like this, he's this madman down in Austin, Texas, who's got like. You know, his, his his walls are covered with his grindhouse movies, and he's got like this encyclopedic knowledge of all these old, you know, movies. So him and Marcus were able to completely riff on like the most obscure movies, <laughs> and he's really, really talented. And and we just started, uh, you know, we we fleshed out the outline, and then it got written really fast. And because they like the little brown, like the idea of it coming out around Halloween, <clears throat> and so. We wrote it, and that's what happened. It came out, and it's you know it's a, it's it's a, it's a very different process, but it was still very collaborative because it was all three of us and the editor, and so you know it wasn't like we just wrote whatever we wanted. We had to work with all these people, right? And um, you know it came out really well, and so we're uh, we did that, and and then subsequently we we have been writing the screenplay with and the adaptation screenplay adaptation with Steven again and then with um Michael DeLuca who mm. uh you know produced like every movie that came out right so um and it's been it's been really good it's been a lot of fun cool um now talking about project greenlight um project greenlight was sort of uh which if people haven't seen it it was ran for 3 seasons um and if people haven't seen it, it was a show that was very much like these competition shows where people try to get uh, uh, a film made. Uh, you have, it, they bring a director and a screenwriter, and they pick you know the best of the best and then put them together, and they make a movie. And yours was season three, and you made Feast uh, with John Gulliger. Um, but I, I think it's, it's one of those things where you assume that, oh, you have made it big. You, 
you won, and so now you're a big Hollywood screenwriter. But there's a lot more that goes into it. Like you were telling me um, that you were writing another script while you were in production on Feast for Project Greenlight. Yeah. Uh, um, well, well, this, oh, well, here's the thing. Is that, yeah. yeah that, that may have been like the outsider's perspective or sure. our perspective that we had made it. But like, all we had made was we were internet contest winners. Sure. Like, that's what the town's perception of us was that. So like we – and plus it's like we got money but not – that much money, sure. <laughs> and, right. you still gotta, and you still got to work at it. We weren't paid to be on the TV show, right? Um, so it's like, great, you're on a TV show, but you can't pay your rent. <laughs> and so, like, so we, so you know, we we were, we, we worked really hard and really fast, and we, and we were somewhat knowledgeable of the industry because we've been out here for a few years before we won. So we knew we sort of knew how things worked, and um, we were friendly with uh, this guy Nick Phillips, who was the vice president over at Dimension at the time. And uh, we, we, the first thing we got hired for after um, Feast in Project Greenlight, mm-hmm. during Project Greenlight, was um, Highlander, the Source, which was – is that Highlander 5, Marcus? Is that what it was? Uh, let me see. I think – I think it was 5, right? That could very well have been <laughs> the fifth installment. Yeah. And so – and, of course, we had seen – everyone had seen the first one. We would seen the first yeah. one. But um, – so we had to have our marathon session of watching, watching the sequels, and you're like, well, certainly. Where do we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> there can only be one or at least five. Right. And so you know, we we just uh, uh, we had some sort of parameters of what they wanted it to be. We knew it was called the stores, and there had been previous scripts, but we didn't. We weren't following that. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> and we were told the budget. The well, budget was going to be. Yeah, like, but you know, Mark, this is like we were pretty, we were young and just like really sort of like excited. Mm-hmm. And I think our, I think our first first draft of Highlander: The Source was 142 pages. Wow. Which <laughs> is they wanted it about 85. Right. And ours was 100. And, 142, and it was like it's so epic. <laughs> it was like yeah, you know, flying monkeys and like you know, <laughs> a budget two million dollars. But if you're really crafty, you could make yeah. a 140-page Highlander epic. So writing writing that was the prelude to Pacific Rim and God of War, right? We had yeah, we had like, just holding the script gave you the quickening. We, and we went like so <laughs> so so deep into it. We had like every character like who had ever been in it, and the TV show we drew from the TV show. <laughs> it was like so big, and then they're like, um, yeah. Uh, so instead of that, we <laughs> and then you know got pared down to whatever, and then just subsequently didn't get made. Uh, although the stores did get made, uh, but that was you know that was years later at a different studio. Um, but it was it was you know it was it was fun. It was our sort of introduction to uh, to, to that to that world, the studio rewrite, and uh, you know I'm not sure how we got on that top topic, but uh, <laughs> just talking about Project Greenlight. Do you have any oh, yeah, interesting yeah. stories about Project Greenlight? Your experience um, with the show. Well, the best was, uh, you know, literally having one day being in a cubicle, um, and I'd take my lunch break to read the other competitors' scripts because you had to submit reviews mm-hmm. of your, of your competition, and in that way, you were being judged on that as well. You couldn't just arbitrarily say this is inferior or anything. No, you actually had to break them down mm-hmm. and and regard them. And I remember I gave all of our competitors positive remarks uh, across the board. You know, there was all something good. When it got down to those those 10 or those 12 scripts, they were all good. Mm-hmm. Well, remember, Marcus, we submitted the first year. Oh, gosh, that was amazing. Like, this is when, like, the Internet uh, was just an idea. Right. When Al Gore's Internet was just a thought. <laughs> right. And, like, and, like th- this is back in the day when, remember, to get a PDF, you had to send your file, like, to Adobe, and then they'd send it back to you. And as and hopefully it worked, <laughs> and like and we sent out feast. I think it was feast, and it came back as like uh, like a what eighteen hundred page um, document of like circles and ones, pretty much, right? Like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so it that came didn't, in second <laughs> in the first season. So that didn't win. Yeah. We, so we we couldn't even figure out how to send it. So we were like, oh, screw this. And then um, 
you remember how like how bullshit it used to be? I mean, that was oh, like, it was hard. Not that long ago, and then like a shitty computer and like <laughs> anyway, but and they're like so slow with the with the with the dial and <laughs> like that whole like modem thing, you know, um, AOL. Hello, you have mail. <laughs> um, and uh, and so like the but it wasn't until the third year that they really the internet where the internet really cooperated much simpler and and it was still it was still the same thing of like you kind of uploaded I guess and you didn't know if it was if it worked or not supposedly hopefully it did work and then that was nerve wracking yeah yeah and then I you know that's like such a fluke thing like how we won that I mean it was just like you, I never win anything I really don't ever and like we just kind of progressed through it and somehow did. Well, oh, especially on when we we knew like the we were all gathered in the at the Roosevelt Hotel and and there were the three finalists um, and there was a crime drama, there was a I think a, a comedy and there was us <laughs> and and so they they selected our script and we were just through the moon and freaking out and then our our families flew in and we were all so pumped about that. Um, and then right before we walked over for the taping of the announcement, mm. this uh, gentleman puts his finger to his earpiece and then he goes, ooh, can we just get a quick reaction if uh, you guys didn't win? And we're like, ooh. <laughs> oh, well, do you remember, too? Wow. Do you remember that was like, it was like, and, and it, was, uh, it was set up for those two chairs. Like, so we're like, wait, why, why would the loser room have two chairs in it? And, you know, and we were the only, yes. we were the only partner writers. Like, oh. <laughs> oh boy, they're ready. <laughs> it was, I mean, oh, it, it was terrifying. And then, and then, and the best thing was meeting John Gulliger, who was, who was so, you know, so, so full of talent and so, you know, humble and and so caring and giving with, with everything he knew. His whole family, they were filmmakers, and like, I, you know, it, it was a really nice stroke of luck for Patrick and I to, to get a story made, but you really felt with the Gulliger is like, this was a, a triumphant moment where these talented artistic family members were given a shot to kick a door down and, and, right. and deliver a tale. And it was so good because they were all part of it. You know? Right. And there was one day where the, the show didn't capture this, um, but it was, it was dead quiet. Didn't hear a thing. And I wandered over, and because I just saw lights and I saw smoke, and I walked over, and there was John Gulliger holding the camera, silently with just fingertips, directing Diane where to puff smoke. Clue his, at the time, 79-year-old father waving his cowboy hat to waft the smoke, and his brother holding a light. Wow. And and that's how they were picking up little inserts here and there, and that's that is their family. Uh, this Friday, I believe, Clue turns 84. Oh, wow! And he's, he's just the best. So we've we've had you know so much fun over the years and defiling uh, <laughs> Gulligers <Sure, yeah. laughs> and and most recently this last June with uh, Piranha 2, uh, we got, the band got back together and offended yet again. <laughs> um, I guess I just wanted to also ask. What's the key to making a great writing partnership work? I mean, you guys have written, I don't know how many films together, worked on so many movies. What's the key to making your partnership work? Sex. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) besides that, I don't know. Uh, Well, because, you know, it's also we have different functions. Like Uh Marcus wants to be directing our stuff. So it's like his Mm -hmm. head is just in kind of generally a different mind space of like, you know, cinematically what it needs to be and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I do not have those ambitions and I'm more sort of focused on just like the intricacies of the, of like, you know, the screenplay and how it reads and how it looks and, you know, aesthetically and all that sort of thing. And so, I don't know, we just sort of uh, bring a different skill set to the table and that, and that, that helps. Because there was a redundancy after a while, you'd be like, well, I don't really need you anymore. You know what I mean? Right. So, um, you know, it just works, and 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 it helps too, especially in the film industry where everything is completely uh, collaborative. To just start on the ground level with that, you know, right. 
it's easy to talk talk through things together because otherwise if you don't really have that who do who do you who do you use some friend and that's not going to work for a while you know for all that long but the friend's like wait i'm giving you all these ideas and you're you know selling half million dollar screenplays and i'm sitting here working at 7-eleven that's not cool <laughs> um, or you know i think your manager is supposed to do that but right. you know with your manager has like is like managing 25 other people and also making movies themselves so how are they supposed to really be all that engaged in, in, in the intricacies of what you're doing right in that moment. And the, so the only other person who is that honed in on something is a writing partner, you know? Right. So, you know, it has its, I think, I think we're just not dumb and it has, has a, has a much more uh, assets in it than liabilities. And, and, and also, you know, we're pretty even killed mm-hmm. uh, and have, uh, you know, our, our sort of, focuses on the long game so we know it's just it's smarter to sort of build this business together as opposed to you know striking out on our own and just going for a quick cash grab or whatever sure Mm -hmm. Um, that's the biggest trick of all is to keep 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 moving it would have been so easy to bask in the glow of of what we thought project Greenlight would do oh we're on tv but but no that was merely that was merely a chance Mm-hmm. And the dance was a slender opening in the doorway, a seat, a guest chair at the adult table, and it's just been fight, 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 climb, climb, climb since then. And leading up to um, the collection, which was uh, you know two years of, of bust and ass to make that difference. So it, when you compare it to an entire uh, series of movies prior, it is still different. It's still horror, yes, it's horror, like all the other ones have been horror. But it must be different. It must be a its own organism. And 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 why does it deserve to live? And why does it deserve to ask time and cash from people? You know, it it, it must be worthy. And right. that that's always been the uh, kind of the fire that keeps going in our bellies to to push and fight and punch and well, you hit make, above our weight. Got to make money too, because it's like. Yep. Okay, great. We you did Project Green like congratulations. That paid you thirty five thousand dollars. What are you gonna do, you know, next year when you're out of money? Right. You know, and so, um, I'm not sure how we got to that train of thought, but the, <laughs> so the, the the point being that you do have to constantly. We haven't made it yet, you know, in in, in the sense that yeah, we're working screenwriters, great, but you know, we're we're freelance, and uh, you know, until you make however many millions of dollars that you can live off the rest of your life, you realize you have to constantly keep on working. We don't, we don't draw a paycheck, you know, we could, right. we could never, we could never work again. Um, so you, you can't just rest on your laurels and, and, you know, uh, past successes or whatever. You have to keep moving forward and trying to do better and trying to put out quality work or you just eventually won't have any. Right. We normally like to ask, uh, as a final question, established screenwriters what sort of advice they may have, but I think that's sort of the best advice that that they can take away from this is that, uh, you know, even established screenwriters like yourselves, you know, the most successful writers um, act as if they haven't made it, you know, and, and, and constantly keep working because, like you said, if you rest on your laurels, uh, the sort of the, the world passes you by and you miss uh, – and opportunities don't just tend to, unless you're Stephen King or unless you're, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg. Opportunities don't like that don't fall in your lap. You have to uh, work hard to make them happen. Yeah, um, yeah, it will. And uh, you know, and and also, um, it is just really persistence. And I know a lot of sure. people say that too. It's persistence. Um, talent, talent uh, is a given. You have to have that. But that's that alone is not at all going to get you what you want it's being persistent and also not being an asshole that is very important as well right you'd be surprised how many people don't pick up on that one yeah (laughs) you're an asshole it's like asshole and working hard sort of go hand in hand don't be an asshole and work hard and if you do that you'll always have work um because you have this is collaborative you have to get along with people and you know you get uh, a lot of times during the day you're gonna have to swallow your pride and you're gonna have to take it and even at the highest level that happens um so uh because the only time it doesn't happen is when you're gonna you're paying for movies with your own money right 
you're making them yourself and you're putting them out yourself. And guess who does that? Pretty much no one. Right. So um, if you want to work in this industry and you want to make sort of a certain standard of, of movie that, that takes money. Mm-hmm. So um, you have to get along with people and play nice. And, you know, it's not, not saying being a pushover necessarily, but, you know, have a strong opinion and stick to it. But you have to be flexible and you have to just get along with people. Right. If you don't, you won't be invited back. You know, we, we were we were brought on to Pacific Rim because we were we're user friendly. We've been in we've we we've worked with a lot of directors before. We've been in high high uh pressure situations before and we've always done well. And so the producer Mary Perrin on that knew that if she brought us in we could we could work with Kier. Well we knew who was in charge, we knew how to take directions and we knew how to, you know, uh get the work done when we're when we're left on our own so that it's ready the next morning mm-hmm. and that was that's like 90 percent of it you know it's, right it's it's can i can we give you these notes and trust that you're going to go away t- tonight and, be, and bring it back tomorrow morning and it's going to be good because we have to have it and if you can do that then you can be a successful screen screenwriter if you can't then you won't ever. Mm-hmm. right and that means like yeah we just work a 16 hour day but guess what we have to go home have dinner grab some Red Bull, and we're staying up until 4 a.m. until it's done. And then right. at 8 o'clock the next morning, we have to be in the office presenting it, and we're going to have notes on that stuff at 9 o'clock. And mm-hmm. again. If you can't do that, then you can't work as, work, work as a screenwriter. Right. Right. It's it's intense. It is. And it's hard. And and there's a lot of tough hours, and you better be dedicated. Or I know plenty of people who have had hit movies and have been subsequently sort of like laid back, kick, kick up the feet, and now they're irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Right. And he ain't working. It's just, it's just how it is, you know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, okay, yeah. If you win an Oscar, uh, that helps, but, well, <laughs> you know, good luck. <laughs> I like the, a subway car. The door is open for everybody, but only right. for so long. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. So when we saw opportunity, which was which was feast, mm-hmm. we jumped at it. And but we've constantly had to reinvent ourselves, um, and and work hard and get to that next level, and 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 you know, do certain things that that change perception about us and open different channels for us. Like, you know, getting got a war gig was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Getting to the rim was a big deal because that was those were much more elevated. The the most expensive movie we'd done before them was about twenty million dollars. Right. <clears throat> but when you get down to the core of what the stories are, they're all really not that different. Right, right. So so if you can speak the language and you can deliver, then you know, you can really do anything. Right. Cool. Now and we that, have a go ahead. No, 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 no I was saying, you know, <clears throat> That just comes with experience, right? And still having that drive, because they're, they're, I mean, trust me, if, if you know, if, if tomorrow, March and I won the, the state lot, you know, the Super Bowl lottery for 150 million dollars, right? I may not do as many free drafts anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You'd be like, ah, right? You know, because there's certain, like, you know, I remember when I was younger, I I, I just see certain directors or writers or whatever, or maybe more like directors, you're like, I wonder why that guy doesn't work anymore. Right. And or, or won't work as much anymore, or really just not work anymore. And, you know, it, it's it's a grind. It really mm-hmm. it really wears you down. And, uh, you know, to a certain point when a lot of these people ha- ha- have, have their golden parachute and they're just like, you know, I don't need to be doing that anymore. <laughs> and they just don't. You know, right. or they'll just do it, or they'll just do like one project every three years. You know, so they can just just focus on that thing and only do that, right? And and not have to deal with the everyday bullshit that goes along with it. Right. Um. Now we've got a few uh, listener questions that I got uh, emailed. Um. Question: Who is more fun to write for, Jigsaw or the Collector? <laughs> well. I mean, they're similar, similar worlds, you know. Uh, 
well, Jigsaw speaks, <laughs> which which right. which is one thing. Um, and he was I mean he was fun to read for because I think we we knew we knew Tobin's a really good actor and we knew him really well, mm-hmm. and and so uh, that specifically he was fun to write for because he could say certain certain things a certain way, and it always sounded really good. But uh, on the other hand, you know, Saw was limiting uh, in, in, in sure. a lot of a lot of ways. While the while while writing for the collector on the collector, it's you know we can do quite a bit more. Right. So you know they each have their assets and liabilities. Uh, what will the third collector movie be called? But now, now you're presuming there is a third. <laughs> I'm not. one. <laughs> well, if we've Mark, met well, the collector, if we've if we've wandered through the collection, uh-huh. then maybe we will be introduced to those who have been collected. There you go. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum. So when uh, the collection opens number one um, on Friday, November 30th, then you can start uh, getting the collected uh, ready. You can start prep on that, right? If, if, you know, it, 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 that would be a delight. <laughs> If those are the if those are the those are the parameters. I don't know if I bet on a third. <laughs> I like uh, James Bond and the Hobbit yeah. versus the collection. We'll 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 see. I mean, we we definitely have um, several things going for us where our reviews thus far have been awesome. The support has been great, and we really are the only middle finger horror movie within a mile of the holidays. So. This this holiday season, please give the gift that keeps on taking. Visit the collection. We'll be happy to be in the, hot, the top ten, quite frankly. <laughs> Our goals are not. So like Saw, because Saw had like you know a built-in audience and it was in mm-hmm. big studio behind it, pushing you know really pushing it hard and and putting a lot of money in it, putting in a lot of screens. Because people people don't realize that screens have a lot to do with it. You know, if you're only sure. in, in three thousand screens. You can make a certain amount of money, but you're, if you're only in a thousand, right, you have to make three times whatever you know you would usually just compare to those other theaters. So it's like, it's it's you know we'll see, <laughs> we'll see. But yeah, we hope to do pretty well. It, we don't have to do all that well just because it's you know it's it was made for ten million dollars, right? So um, <laughs> it's not like we need to make. It's not like you know Avengers needed to make a billion dollars to be profitable. We don't need to make a billion dollars, right? So right. maybe we will. We probably will. <laughs> well, with the collection, um, again, I didn't know going into it when I saw it that it was mm-hmm. uh, a sequel. But then going back and doing a little bit more research on it, um, there is sort of a cult following for the collector in the collection. So hopefully that will definitely help the bottom line. You know? Yeah, yeah. It did, it didn't uh, when it came, it came out in the middle of the summer with like. 12 other things on at the same time and it, and it just kind of got buried mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of awareness and, but it, people found it afterwards definitely um, yeah. so hopefully those people will be reminded of it through some sort of marketing uh, gem and, and they'll go see the, the sequel yeah absolutely um, here's another one uh, what horror franchise would you guys like to reimagine reimagine I guess wow. how they're remaking like Halloween and all these other I think that's what we're talking about. Right. Um, Goodness. Ghoulies, maybe? I don't know if you, oh, you remember cool. Ghoulies? Yeah, I do. I do. Very cool. No, I, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I like, I just, I, it had a great poster. Do you remember it was like the ghoulie coming yeah, out of the yeah. toilet or something like that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, we don't necessarily think like that because that's, that's like um, usually the things that don't strike me as well, the things that do strike me as, oh, we should, someone should remake that is something that had a really good idea, but just wasn't very good. Right. You know? um, but is there any sort of uh, horror franchise uh, that you would love to get a shot at? Like, you know, I don't know. Is there, has there been any point where you're like, oh, you know what I would really love to do? This movie. Maybe 20 years from now, when we're old and washed up, we'll like, we'll remake The Collector. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, Marcus. I'm, I'm not. I'm not, nothing like. I mean, besides Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which needs to be made. Um, <laughs> Big budget stuff. Oh, good. Um, the problem with that one, it's got like it's got this rights thing. It's all screwed up, and it's it's impossible to do. Like, 
Well, the one the one that I think that actually would be a, a romp, just in like an absolute fun time, and it's a one off, is a remake of John Frankenheimer's The Prophecy, okay. where the uh, Iron, um, no, I'm sorry, Mercury. Uh, the riddle is what can stay dry in water, and it's mercury. Mercury has been leaking into the water system and is slowly deforming and manipulating all forms of nature. And it's up to Armand de Sante <laughs> and a guy with a beard nice. from Falcon Crest to nice. stop. And the thing is that ultimately their big villain is this bear, and the effects didn't work out so well because it looks like a bear with a bunch of like mayonnaise thrown on it but that's supposed to be frothing evil bear solution or something. Right. And they have like this huge fish jumping out of the water. And then they never paid off this one bit where there was a character who was pregnant, who was eating the laced fish the entire time. So you're thinking like, Oh, that's what's going to be the big third act reveal. No, the prophecy is fulfilled. <laughs> Didn't quite go there. Um, but it does feature still a stunning sequence and beautiful, uh, 35 millimeter film where the evil mayonnaise covered bear punts a kid in a sleeping bag and the sleeping <laughs> bag goes end over end into a tree and explodes in a burst of feathers. Wow. And that. And the guy with the beard from Falcon Crest. Can... The guy with the beard from Falcon Crest. His beard gets into it and a great Scott and a dreamy delicious Armand Asante. Now, in your remake, would you try to find the guy with the beard from Falcon Crest and bring him back for a cameo, sort of an homage, sort of homage oh, have to, to the original? No, I think everybody would come back and reprise their roles. Oh, okay. Playing them the age they were in the original. <laughs> so the kid who gets punted would be you know, like 40. Yeah, he's a four, mid-40s at yeah. least. I think you'd have to. Nice. And the bear, we'd bring back the same bear. It probably still doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> no, was it an actual bear, or was it a guy in a costume? It was something that I think was intended to be built and and be terrifying, but you could kind of tell that probably the arms didn't work, and it was too top-heavy because they wanted the bear to stand up and attack, and so they play this music, dun, 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 and then this bear <laughs> just enters the frame like, ah! <laughs> it's, it's just not intimidating. Oh, goodness. But the idea of na every element of nature being pumped full of maddening, you're going to be ten times as big, steroid-laced mercury is pretty cool. Like, turn, turn a trip into the woods really into a nature run amok of all species? Cool. By eating mercury or in the mercury in the water. I, that's yeah. They 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 tie it all together with mercury. So essentially, the very solution that's been in thermometers for years could right. turn nature into a wild terrain of horror. I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen, but that's that sounds like a good story. I you know I I thought the same way. Apparently, it happens all the time. <laughs> um. I, I believe I saw some History Channel show where it wasn't Genghis Khan, or maybe it was Genghis Khan. One of those barbarian, famous barbarian overlords was given mercury on a daily basis as a, a medicine, a cure-all, and he just went crazy and died. He didn't. Yeah, die. that's not the best. He, he should have stuck with yeah. aspirin. Um, rapid fire questions, the last part of the show. Just a couple sort of either-or questions for you guys. Uh, if you could both take a stab at this. Um, yep. First question, vampires or werewolves? Werewolves. Werewolves. Uh, Jason or Freddy? Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. Uh, Wes Craven or Stephen King? Stephen King. Um, did you did you both say Stephen King, Patrick? Cause... We said at the same time. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's out, what makes out. a great partnership. Look at that. <laughs> Um, better children's legend, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, or Krampus? Who's Krampus? <laughs> Krampus is like a Norwegian uh, myth that like 
in, I, I don't know if it's Norway or Finland, one of these Nordic countries where you have Santa Claus. If you've been good, Santa Claus will come visit you and bring you presents. If you if you've been bad, I see where this is going. I'm going Krampus with comes with a chain and hits you with a chain if you've been bad. It's like this demon. That sounds like Krampus. Yeah. Krampus. Krampus might be making a visit over my house. <laughs> Krampus. I love Krampus. We need to get to the bottom of Krampus. <laughs> Krampus. Um, and lastly, who would win in a potato sack race? You know, the ones where one leg is in a potato sack and yeah. run, uh, you guys or the collector and jigsaw and what? Oh, well, certainly them. I mean, yeah. They'd... That'd be one before the game even began. Right? <laughs> yes. You know, he put on that, that those, the, 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 the potato sack and, you know, he just come in there. <laughs> yeah. That quickly. That's true. And, or the judges, whoever, judged it would definitely yeah. not vote against the collector and or jigsaw um cool well that's all the time we have for now thanks for Great. joining me today marcus and patrick uh you can absolutely follow, yeah you can follow patrick on twitter at patrick w melton uh and marcus is at marcus dunston um and yep. your website marcusdunston.com is coming shortly by the time it's you- coming up hopefully it'll be on by the time this webcast debuts there you go and the collection in theaters Friday, November 30th. Check it out. Um, yes. Uh, please visit our website, too, at scriptsandscribes.com for more information on all of our guests' archive podcasts and lots of other great written interviews and information on writing. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.